All right. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are actually, for the first time ever, recording at Lexi's house. And Lexi actually has had some paranormal experiences the last couple of weeks. And I wanted her to just talk to you about it. Yeah. Um, usually, I am, like, pretty sensitive, but I haven't been. And then, I don't know, what was, like, a couple weeks ago, I think I texted you guys. Um, so... This house that we live in was built in, like, the 1800s, and it's everything's, like, you know, refurbished and brand new now. But um, I don't really know any history about the house. I tried looking it up, but couldn't find much. But we live in um, a small historic town that is extremely haunted. They do ghost tours around, like, Halloween. Um, they do a bunch of history tours and things of that nature, so... Who knows what is in this house, um, but I'll get to it. So I have had, you know, nightmares or night terrors before, but I had a weird, like, I couldn't tell if it was sleep paralysis or it was, like, actually happening, but I had woken up and it was, you know, the casual witching hour of, like, 3 a.m., and I literally felt like someone had their hand over my mouth. And on my hands, then I, like, couldn't move or couldn't speak or couldn't breathe. Like, it was the scariest feeling. It really freaked me out. I was, like, sweating. And I live with my boyfriend, and he's sleeping, like, next to me like a baby. And I was, like, trying to ask him for help, but I couldn't. Like, so I think it was sleep paralysis. But the thing that really freaked me out was I smelled cologne. Like, like mm. an overwhelming, like, old smell of cologne. And then I woke up and I couldn't breathe. I was like in a panic. Like my body just felt weird. I could have sworn I saw a man in the room. And I was just like sitting there and I rolled over and I looked at the clock and it was like 3.30 in the morning. So I literally immediately pick up my phone and text my friends like they're up in the middle of the week at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I like told them like how freaked out I was. I couldn't fall back to sleep at all. I just had this like awful feeling. And then, like, the next day, I just felt, like, really off and, like, out of it. And then, um, I don't know. What do you call that thing? We're sitting in my kitchen. It's, like, a bar table, I guess. Yeah. So, we have, like, a bar table. And we it holds, like, champagne glasses, wine glasses, and all that kind of stuff. And the other day, um, Matt and I were both home working. And then he comes downstairs and he's, like, Lex, what did you do? And I'm like, what do you mean? And there was, like, glass shattered all over the place from the bar. And, like, neither one of us heard it happen, which is weird. Like, maybe it was just because we were upstairs. But there was, like, shattered glass everywhere. And we didn't have, like, too many glasses. Or, like, So I have no idea how that, like, would have yeah. just no, that's fallen by itself. Like, you're looking at it right well, now. yeah, like, you're looking. They're, like, the glasses are on the track. Yeah. And they're, like, further in. So I feel like unless someone was playing with them yeah, or like, knocked into to, it. You'd have to, like, actually knock into that. Yeah. And it's, like, flush against the wall. Yeah. So, like, I don't it's know. Creepy. It's not like someone, like, could have bought. I don't know. It's weird. So there was broken glass. And then my dog... Um, she's a pit bull and she literally is like the biggest mush. Never, she never really barks at anything. Like, except the, like, UPS guy, like every other dog. And like, if someone knocks on the door, she'll bark. She's not really much of a barker in general. And the last few weeks at like weird times in the middle of the night, she's just been like barking at like nothing. 
because she's crate trained, so she sleeps in her crate, and, like, we have her crate in the back room by our back door, so one night, Matt and I were sleeping, and it was, like, middle of the night, it was, like, two or three o'clock in the morning, well, she barked at, like, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, like, incessantly, and I was freaked out because I thought, like, maybe someone was trying to get in the back door. Because mm-hmm. we don't have, like, a gate to our backyard. Yeah, like, backyard. you could just walk up my neighbor's driveway and get into our backyard very easily. So, I was, like, freaked out. And I'm, like, her crate is literally, like, next to the back door. So, I'm, like, maybe someone was trying to get in. Mm. And then I'm, like, Matt, grab, like, your knife and pepper spray. And he's, like, I don't know why she's barking. She's just being Yeah, but I feel like if someone was trying to get in, wouldn't you hear it? Cause yeah, well, and that's the thing. Yeah, your and, like, our right bedroom there. is literally right above her crate mm-hmm. so we can hear her. Yeah. So I'm, like, so then he's, like, oh, boy, what are you, we would have heard the door or something, you know. And I'm, like, true. And then I'm, like, oh, fuck, well, like, what was that? Mm-hmm. So he went down there, checked on him. She literally just stared at him, like, stopped barking. And then she, like, a couple hours later, started barking again, and I went downstairs. The second I came downstairs and stood in front of her crate, I tried to let her out, go to the bathroom. She didn't have to go to the bathroom. She didn't want to even get out of her crate. I'm like, okay. Yeah, that's, that's sketchy. And then it happened again, like, a couple nights ago. Same thing. Mm-hmm. This time it was, it was, like, right when we went to bed, because we go to bed around, like, 11. Mm-hmm. And this was probably at, like, 1230 in the morning that she started, like, barking. And then it happened again this morning at... Literally, like, 6 o'clock this morning. That's so weird. And so it was, like, still kind of light out. I don't know. It was, like, it's gloomy out. But, Mm. like, I don't know. She just keeps, like, barking at seemingly nothing. And, like, nothing else weird has happened, but I just don't. Yeah. Now, Lexi's going to cleanse her house because she has to. (laughs) So I got um, a cleansing kit. I got some sage. I got lavender. I got Palo Santo. Um, I got my little abalone shell with the sand and the amethyst stone. Um, so whatever fuck is in here, whether it's negative or not, it's, it's gotta go. (laughs) It's leaving. It's gotta go. (laughs) We're expelling you. (laughs) Yeah. We're gonna be gone of whatever energy is in here. Super creepy. And I like, don't know if I'm just being paranoid or whatever, but I just, I've been feeling off. Yeah. And, like, just paranoid, which I've literally never since we've lived here. we lived here for, like, what, two years now? Yeah. Like, since 2020? Yeah. 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 We lived here for, like... Almost three years, like, this summer. Yeah, right? it'll be, like, three years in the summer. Um, But, like... That it just started happening. It like, just started like, happening. Like, we never had anything weird happen, yeah. like, ever. And Matt it's made crazy. a joke because we cleaned out our hallway. That's our call space. I don't know if you ever... Yeah, I just noticed there. it, like, two weekends ago. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, it's just, it kind of looks like just a closet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's stairs to our crawl space. And Matt made a joke that we disturbed something in the crawl space because we um, moved a bunch of shit out of the hallway and put it in the crawl space. But we were, like, iffy about putting things in the crawl space to make space because it's a crawl space mm-hmm. and she gets, like, wet down yeah. there and, like, gross. So we didn't want to get anything ruined. So now I'm like, wait, did yeah, we you actually something. deserve something in our crawl space? That kind of makes sense. He said it as a joke, but I'm like... It kind of makes sense because it yeah. happened like right after. Yeah, that. I'm like, that kind of checks. And he, he like, he doesn't believe in shit like that. Yeah. He thinks I'm like, thinks I'm nuts. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah. we're just going to cleanse the house <laughs> and uh, get rid of whatever negative energy is here and... Hopefully my dog stops barking incessantly in the middle of the night because it's actually really annoying when you're 
stone cold to sleep. Trying to sleep, yeah. <laughs> oh man, I the one time I was like, it was a couple weeks ago, and I was like kind of feeling under the weather, so I mm-hmm. took some Nyquil. Oh, I swear to God, I felt like I was hallucinating when I woke up, and I'm like, what is she pouring at? And I, I was like, you know, when you're like in a that's where Nyquil puts you in like. A oh my God! Yeah, gives you the weirdest <laughs> and, dreams yeah, too. Yeah, and it was like I woke up to her like barking crazy, and I was like, oh my God, I'm like in a freaking Nyquil coma. Like, what are you barking <laughs> at? I, if there was an intruder, like I'm not equipped to handle this. <laughs> so, oh, uh, speaking no, no. of, I also got a ring camera for our back door. We have one on our front door, but I also got one for the back, and Matt. Uh, begrudgingly <laughs> put it out there the other day. He's like, I don't think we really need this, but I was like, no, we're we're seeing. He wants to appease so, you. Anyway, that was a really long tangent. No, I love it. We needed to tell him. So today, stuff. are you ready to get not so holly and talk about murderers? Oh, nervous for this one. This, oh. one's, this one's dark. I know. I'm excited. Well, yeah. I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, uh, clearly not about like the case, but I was. It was fun to research. Uh, we're gonna be doing two cases, two Christmas cases. Um, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? You can go first. Okay. I feel like I just talked forever. Okay. <laughs> Eight minutes. It's not like a long time. You know, probably like Lex. No one oh, cares stop. about your paranormal. Usually we <laughs> go right into it, but we need to have like buffer. You know. Oh God! All right, so. Mine is about Bruce McArthur, and he's called the Santa Claus Serial Killer. Um, There is actually a series on BBC, but BBC hates me, and I couldn't watch it unless I was in the UK, so, Uh, but I read, like, the transcript from it, and then there's so many things about it um, all over, so many articles and so many investigations, uh, you'll see, but I did want to give you a warning, it is... A lot of information. The timelines are all over the place, but I promise it makes sense in the end. Um, they kind of just break. I I did it more of like breaking down his life from like early life, married life, like from there, and then I have a whole section for the victims. So just if I'm going on tangents, just bear with me. It'll all make sense at the end. So just a little bit before I get into the case, I'll give you a little synopsis. Uh, Between 2010 and 2017, a total of eight men disappeared from the neighborhood of Church and Wolseley. I hope I'm saying that right. That's the gay village of Toronto, Ontario. Ontario. Ontario, Canada. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's... Uh, The investigation into the disappearances taken up by two successive police task force eventually led to Bruce MacArthur, who was a 66-year-old self-employed Toronto landscaper, whom they arrested on January 18, 2018. So this is still fairly Damn, new. Damn, that's yeah. like new. Yeah. And MacArthur is the most prolific known serial killer to have been active in Toronto and the oldest known serial killer in all of Canada. So we'll get going on his early life. His full name is Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, but he only went by Bruce MacArthur. He was born on October 8, 1951, in Lindsay, Ontario. Ontario. I can say this. Ontario, Ontario. Whatever. Tomato, tomato. Whatever, <laughs> you know. And was raised on a farm in Argyle near Woodville in the Quartha Lakes region. In addition to raising MacArthur and his sister, his parents fostered troubled children from Toronto, often with 6 to 10 in their care at any given time, and had a good reputation in the area, according to the family friend. Yeah, so his family was like a great 
like well known over the whole community. They had so many, like they said, six to ten children in their care. So MacArthur's mother was Irish Catholic and his father a Scottish Presbyterian. Both were devout, causing arguments in which MacArthur supported his mother. This led to disrespect from his strict father, who MacArthur later felt may have sensed his homosexuality. And MacArthur had trouble accepting his sexual orientation, which would have been seen as abnormal in rural Ontario at that time. MacArthur was bused to nearby Benelin Falls Secondary School for his secondary education. So what's that? I think that's either like, um, I think back then, I think that was high school. Okay. So, and then where the when he went to high school, I'm just going to say, where he met and began dating Janice Campbell, both graduating in 1970. MacArthur later graduated from a program in general business and married Campbell when he was at the age of 23. So we're going to go to talk about his married life. Yeah, so was this like a fake marriage? Or am I no, no. Out of myself? No. Okay. So he's like, right now, he, he doesn't even know. <laughs> that he was homosexual. <laughs> I don't know. No, I but I, yeah. I, I, yeah. Uh, okay. So MacArthur began working for Eaton's department stores as a buyer's assistant around 1973. If you need any um, context of what that is, it's Rachel's job in like the <laughs> in Friends in like season three. So, <laughs> and this was in a downtown Toronto building, a few blocks north from MacArthur's workplace. A gay village was forming on Yong Street. Yong? Show. 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 Yong Street between college and Wellesley Streets. Same-sex adult sexual behavior having been decriminalized in uh, Canada in 1969. MacArthur left Eaton's in 1978 and began working as a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks, soliciting department stores to carry his, mer- mer- carry his merchandise. Hey, I'm just just going forward, okay? He later worked as a merchandising representative for Stanfield's, a garment company. In the mid-1970s, MacArthur's father was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor and was sent to a nursing home. MacArthur became disappointed when his mother took interest in another man and grew much closer to his father at this time. And they were already estranged before this. Okay. His mother died of cancer in 1978, and his father died in 1981. So he really didn't even get to build a relationship with his father. So. Yeah. And in 1979, the year after his mother died, MacArthur and his wife moved into a house in Oshawa. And by 1981, they had a daughter, Melanie, and a son, Todd. In 1986, this is why I'm saying it goes all over the place, but it all makes sense. In 1986, the MacArthur's bought a home on Cartref Avenue in Oshawa. MacArthur became very active in his church, keeping himself busy to avoid examining his homosexual feelings. MacArthur began having sexual affairs with men in the early 1990s. More than a year later, he came out of the closet to his wife, but they continued living together. Sometime after 1993, MacArthur's employment in the clothing trade came to an end, and the couple faced financial difficulty in part due to legal issues connected to their then-teenage son. And this is the only time you'll hear it. It's nearly not a big thing. Uh, his son, Todd, was obsessively making obscene phone calls to women he didn't know. And he was like a troubled kid. Okay. He wasn't close with his father. And then the couple mortgaged their home in 1997 and declared bankruptcy in 1999. MacArthur then separated from his wife in 
1997 and moved to Toronto. So he left um, after they mortgaged their home. Mm-hmm. And as there was no gay community in Oshawa at the time, that's why he moved to Toronto. He frequented the bars and church in Wellesley, Toronto's gay village, and moved into an apartment on Don Mills Road while pursuing a four-year relationship with another man. When they broke up and his divorce was being finalized, MacArthur saw a psychiatrist and was prescribed Prozac for several months. About this time, he was attempting to gain work as a landscaper, which he did. Mm-hmm. And the reason why he's called the Santa Claus Killer, I forgot to tell you guys this before, which we'll get to, he actually every year portrayed Santa at the malls. So, Oh, yeah. okay. So he every year for, I think it was 20 years he was doing it. My in, yeah, in Toronto. So there is one assault, and this is going to infuriate you. This is the first ever assault that happened with him. I'm sorry, it's not with a kid. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. Okay. Oh, kid, kid assaults always fuck me up. There's really not, yeah, there's not kid assaults in okay. this, so. Not that any, I'm not condoning any assaults. No, no, but no. I'm no, just but saying kid assaults know, are always right? like the worst of stomach. So, just after noon, it's on Halloween, October 31st, 2001. Wow, I'm so used to saying 20, like 2022. (laughs) So, on October 31st, 2001, a few weeks after his 50th birthday, MacArthur followed actor and model Mark Henderson into his apartment after being invited by Henderson to see his Halloween costume. MacArthur then proceeded to strike Henderson several times from behind with an iron pipe that he often (gasps) carried. Who just casually carries an iron That's pipe? literally my note. I said, why would he casually carry a pipe? And no one thought to question this. That's creepy. But Henderson... Also, too, is this his first victim? This is his first Wow, this is surprising because you said he's 50. Yeah. Which, he didn't like, start until late in life. I feel like people life. usually, like, age out of crime yeah. around them. Yeah, he... I Like, we'll go over. I think he... He just okay. never... He couldn't accept himself as homosexual. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer. Like yeah. The whole thing with that. But it was, it gets, yeah, he was 50 when he did his first crime. That's why. Henderson fought back before losing consciousness. When he did become conscious, he called 911 and was taken to St. Michael's Hospital. He had suffered injuries to his head and body and needed several stitches on the back of his head and his fingers, as well as six weeks of physiotherapy. MacArthur, who turned himself in after the attack, said he did not remember the incident or why he might have done it. He pleaded pleaded guilty to charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. And on April 11, 2003, received a conditional sentence. So that took two years. Wow. Yeah. He received a conditional sentence of 729 days, which is two years. It's I think it's a day short of two years. Okay. Uh, The Crown Attorney, which is uh, the prosecutor, it's... I had to look that up because it's Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> had earlier believed jail time was warranted, but agreed to a conditional sentence after psychiatric and pre-sentencing reports suggested MacArthur was a low risk to reoffend. Yeah. <laughs> Just remember that. That's funny. The victim said by the Crown Attorney to have been traumatized by the incident did not provide a victim impact statement for the sentencing. And there were concerns that MacArthur's unexplained behavior may have been due to the combination of his anti-seizure medication, and which was a muscle relaxant, which sometimes taken rec- recreally. Recreationally. Thank you for Don't sex. Worry, I got you. Before sex. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, I never knew that. 
I know that's never been like a muscle before. relaxant. Wouldn't that like? Yeah, wouldn't that just like put you to sleep? But wouldn't that like kind of like diminish? Yeah, like, right. I don't know. I feel like that's the total opposite yeah, of that's Viagra. The, yeah, that's like the opposite <laughs> yeah. effect that I think. I mean, hey. Whatever. I mean, it was no. This was two thousand one. Yeah, it wasn't like it was like the seventies. Crazy long ago. Uh, MacArthur actually avoided incarceration at all costs, spending the first year of his sentence under house arrest. Followed by a six-month curfew and three years of probation. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. During the sentence, he was barred from church and Wellesley except for work and medical appointments and had to stay at least 33 feet from the victim's home or workplace. And he could not spend time with male prostitutes. Sorry, what a written... 33 33 feet. feet. (laughs) And he couldn't spend time with male prostitutes. Like, where did that come from? You clearly think he's a danger, so... Yeah. MacArthur was forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years and he was not to purchase possess or consume consume drugs without a medical prescription and specifically not to possess poppers which was the muscle relaxant okay um i think that they wanted that because he was using it before sex so it probably made they thought it made him become like aggressive so this is probably a stupid question i don't know if you know this but is prostitution legal there and uh, you know what? I want to look know. it up. Because if they said, like, stay away from prostitution, but... Or maybe they're just, like... I don't know. Yeah. Can't really. Yeah. Legal. I thought they have private I establishments. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. That's weird. You learn new things every day. Yeah, <laughs> oh. He also had to submit his DNA to a database and was compelled to undertake psychological and psychiatric counseling, including anger management. A retired homicide detective noted that parole conditions, these parole conditions were unforceable, were not published or made public knowledge, and that parole violators were caught only if they came to the attention of the police. So, that's... It's 2003. All right, okay. now we're jumping forward. In 2014, just for right now, because then we're going right back to 20, yeah. 2002. Okay. But in 2014, MacArthur was granted this pisses me the fuck off. I don't know how that just Lexi's Roomba just went on and then just went off. Ew. Yo, that shit's on a timer. I don't like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> And okay, another paranormal thing. So, that's <laughs> this is gonna piss you off like it pissed me off. In 2014, so 11 years after his conviction, MacArthur was granted a record suspension on the conviction, which totally expunged him of his record and would not have appeared in a criminal background check during subsequent subsequent <laughs> subsequent investigations. Most records and exhibits were destroyed in 2010 in compliance with Toronto Police Services retention policy. What? And the only surviving documents were the transcripts of the guilty plea and sentencing hearing, the psychiatric report, and the pre-sentencing report ordered during trial. And all of these were under seal. So you could not even get them unless you put in an order for it. So... 11 years after, he was completely expunged from everything. And this is like an aggressive, like, thank God you didn't die, like the victim. It was aggressive. That's like a, yeah. Beat him with the pipe. Yeah. I can't. That's wild. All right, so now we're backtracking back to 2002. And in 2002, when the assault case was still before the courts, MacArthur registered with Recon, a gay fetish dating website, 
for men into BDSM, where his profile noted his interest in submissive men. He was active on numerous gay dating websites, including... They're ready. These names are insane. Silver Daddies, Man Jam, <laughs> Grinder, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, Squirt, and Growler. <laughs> They're straightforward. <laughs> I, I I knew of Growler and Grinder. I've heard of never Growler. The only one I never heard was Grinder. Man Jam's my favorite. Man Jam. I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of these got like banned, but okay. Uh, MacArthur joined Facebook in 2011 and cataloged his nightlife with pictures of parties, vacations, birthday dinners, and concerts. (laughs) Younger men of South Asian or Middle Eastern descent were in several pictures, which you'll come to know that was more of his MO. He went for these more immigrants, so that were coming for like more freedom in these countries. And by this time, MacArthur had become a part of the gay community and was a regular at its bars. Since tw- 2007 and 2008, he was living in a 19th floor apartment at Leeside Towers in Thorncliffe Park, a neighborhood populated mainly by immigrants about three miles northeast of Church and Wellesley. MacArthur's 2003 banishment from Church and Wellesley when he was charged. Mm-hmm remained well-known, and he had developed a reputation for BDSM and rough sex. In 2011, he told an acquaintance named Robert James about an incident in which he had been asked to leave a coffee house, which caused MacArthur to knock all the glasses off the counter in rage. James decided to heed advice to stay away from MacArthur, explaining that he heard disturbing stories about him. This is going to be graphic content, so okay. just, well, more of like, the words, not like what he does. Okay. According to James, MacArthur turned red and screamed about saying, fucking faggots telling stories about me. And you're just like the rest of them. You think I'm crazy. MacArthur had become a self-employed landscaper after this, operating under the name Artistic Designs. Most of MacArthur's clients were wealthy elderly women who found him charming. And he had built a client base through personal recommendations. And then during the off-season, every year, MacArthur portrayed Santa Claus at Agincourt Court Mall. MacArthur's separation from his wife was initially heated, though they later reconciled. Uh, his son, Todd, was reported to have difficulty accepting his father as gay. And in 2014, Todd was sentenced to 14 months in jail for making multiple scene phone calls. He was released on bail and ordered to stay with his father at his Toronto apartment and a... Toronto apartment and assists with MacArthur's landscaping business. A former friend of Todd's visited one night and discovered the wall of MacArthur's bathroom was decorated with photos of naked men with erections. Whoa. Yeah. All over his bathroom, which is weird. Like, can you imagine? Why would you put it? That why? Like, why is it in your bedroom? Your son lives with you, first of all. Yeah, yeah, that's. He said that the most of the men appeared to be East Indian, and that Todd said that they were men whom his father knew. MacArthur did not hide the fact, laughing over it at breakfast. Oh. So he was unhinged. And I did mention before that there were two police task force that went into the missing people for this whole thing. I'm going to talk about them. Number one, the first task force... I I give up. I'm sorry. (laughs) I have a cold. My nose is, like, running, and I just can't even do this. But Project Houston was task force... Task Force. You're good. Number one. In November 2012, the TPS 
launch a task force dubbed Project Houston into the September 6, 2010 disappearance of Skanderidge, who went by Skanda Navaratnam. Believing, and if I say any of these wrong, I apologize. <laughs> Believing that he had been murdered but having discovered no leads. According to a 2018 W5 investigation, a man posted on a cannibal website in, it's called Zambian Meat. And twenty. I've heard of this in other cases. Yeah, it's a thing. It's like the dark web. I know that's. It's so, so weird. Like, did you ever Wait, watch Fresh? No. Oh my god, you have to watch it on Hulu. Okay. It's uh, Sebastian Stan. It's about like a cannibal. Oh really? And he sells like kind of like this to like wow. high bidders, and it's weird. It's like a thing. It's so weird. That's scary. The dark web's scary. Yeah. No, thank you. I'll stay on the, the light web. I don't know. <laughs> the light web. <laughs> The normal web. (laughs) Uh, So a man posted on the cannibal website in 2012 that he killed and eaten a man in Toronto, which had led to the formation of Project Houston. Police briefly investigated a possible link between uh, Skanda's murder and convicted murder Luca Magnata, who was the cannibal. Yes. Okay. I remember, like, doing research on Luca. Yeah. That was the guy who... Correct. I don't know. I don't think I've ever heard of him before. Uh, it just says he is convicted Canadian murderer. He was convicted of murdering and dismembering John Lynn and mailing his severed limbs to different political parties in elementary school. Yes, it was. Um, That's disgusting. It was that don't fuck with cats. Oh, was it? Yeah, I did the see hunting that. Hunting an internet killer oh. or whatever. That was I didn't Luca know that was Magnata. Him. Oh, okay. Now I remember because Luca. Okay. Yes. Oh, that Sorry. Because he was such a psycho from pet. Scarborough, Toronto. I think. Ew. 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 But uh, clearly, it didn't connect. So, but that's actually cool. I didn't realize Whoa, that when I was researching. That's wild. So they thought actually that Luca killed Skanda, but lack of evidence. By June of 2013, Project Houston had identified two other missing persons linked by geography and lifestyle, Basir Faizi and Hamid Kayan. These are their nicknames. I'm just not going to do their full names because they weren't in any articles. Okay. Um, like Skanda, both men were middle-aged immigrants of South Asia origin who disappeared from Church and Wellesley between 2010 and 2012. <laughs> I can. An anonymous tip linking MacArthur to Skanda and Kahan led police to interview him on November 11, 2013. Police had been told that he had a romantic relationship with Skanda and had visited Kahan. MacArthur told police that he knew both men and regularly interacted with Skanda at a gay bar, but denied being in a relationship with him. MacArthur also admitted to employing Kahan to his landscape business with whom he had broken off a sexual relationship. Project Houston concluded with no evidence to link the disappearance that a crime had been committed or to identify a suspect. So they spoke with him, interviewed him, and he said, yeah, I knew them, but that's it. That always, like, freaks me out. I know. And he got away that they spoke with him in 2013, and then the next task force did not start until June 26, 2017. And one day after attending Pride Toronto, Andrew Kinsman 
disappeared from Cabbage Town, which I love that band. <laughs> my Cabbage Patch Kids. I was, that's, yeah, that's where exactly where my hat, my head goes. I said hat. Can't talk either. Oh, oh my god, it's one of those days. Okay, yeah. it's gloomy. It's raining. It's Just cold. let us be. It's supposed to be twenty six degrees this weekend. You know what's bizarre? Hmm. Tomorrow's gonna be like almost sixty yeah. degrees. And then it's going to change into freezing. Well, tomorrow it's going to be 56 degrees tomorrow, but at night it's going to be 14. Like. How? I'm sorry. New Jersey has bipolar weather. I can't. But I don't know. All right. Kinsman was last seen in the area of his residence on Winchester Street. And on the evening of June 28th, learning that no one had seen Kinsman in a couple days, Ted Healy and other friends gained access to his apartment. They found no sign of disturbance. Though his 17-year-old cat was out of food and water. They reported Kinsman's disappearance to the police the following day. Kinsman, who was openly gay and had deep roots in the community, was regarded as a stable and responsible man whose friends felt would not suddenly leave, and certainly not without his cat, or his prescription medicine. It was also noted to be unlike Kinsman to go anywhere without notifying friends or family. He was active on social media, but investigators found his cell phone was turned off the day he disappeared. Mm -hmm. And this was, he was reported missing on June 29th. At the end of July 2017, the TPS created a new task force, Project PRISM, to investigate the disappearances of Kinsman and another man, Selim Eason, and to look for any links with unsolved disappearance investigated under Project Houston. So they went together. Okay. Greg Downer, a friend and colleague of Kinsman, Kinsman, sorry, <laughs> that's a movie, Kinsman, <laughs> Kinsman, who set up Facebook groups dedicated to finding him and other missing men, organized an August 1st community safety meeting in which police gave an overview of the task force and thanked the community for the abundance of information that they've received. Queer refugees... <laughs> refugees? Queer refugees, transgender, and two-spirit people spoke of their vulnerabilities experiencing disproportionate violence within the LGBT, LGBTQ community. That's Downer's group, which is called the Missing Rainbow Community, which I love Aww. that name, provided, I love this, provided strategies for staying safe when meeting people from dating apps. That's smart. Mm -hmm. Realizing the difficulty police face with judicial authorizations for data from servers located outside Canada, which caused delays in the crucial early days oh, of the missing persons. I didn't even think of that. That's why it actually took them so long. To figure wow. out who, like, what happened to these missing yeah. people. Wow. And Downer appealed to dating apps to provide an option for users to consent to have their data released to police if they went missing. Safety hotlines were also set up for those reluctant to speak to police. So he actually had started the movement of protecting people on these, from the gay, like, uh, dating apps, which is okay. awesome. That's cool. So. They need to do that for like, all dating Yeah, I think they do now. Um but this this still like it it baffles me that this is 2017 and that dating apps weren't doing this yet. But uh, around this time, fears of a serial killer were stalking Church and Wellesley, growing on November 29, 2017, when the bodies of Tess Ritchie was found by her mother in an alleyway four days after she was reported missing. The following day, police announced that the body of Alora Wells, a homeless transgender woman, had been identified, her body having been discovered in a Rosedale ravine in August. Because of fears in the community, TPS Chief Mark Saunders 
held an unprecedented December 8th news conference on the three separate investigations into the deaths of Richie and Wells and a disappearance of Kinsman and Eason. Um, I just want to make it clear that um, Bruce actually did not kill Richie and Wells. I was going to say, those don't sound like yeah. his MO. Mm-mm. And then, although the cases occurred in close proximity, but they did not believe that they were related. Okay. And then Project Prism was overseen by Detective Sergeant Michael Richmond and led by Detective Sergeant Hank Insigna, who had served on the Homicide Squad for over 13 years and had been assigned to Project Houston for six months, which was the first task force. Okay. So he was on both. You know, it's so confusing. That's why I said, just bear with me. And the task force also included an officer from the Sex Crimes Unit and six officers from Police 51 Division, three of whom who who also had been on Project Houston. The investigation was difficult because of the lifestyle of the subjects who used dating apps and frequently met people who they had never met before. Kinsman's disappearance was central to the creation of Project Prism because of the lead obtained at the end of July. Insigna later said that a crucial piece of evidence was recovered because Kinsman's disappearance had been reported within 72 hours, after which evidence could have been lost. According to an agreed statement of facts in court, police found Bruce on Kinsman's calendar for June 26th, the same day Kinsman was last seen. Mm. Sketchy. That day, surveillance video outside Kinsman's residence showed a person matching his appearance approach a red vehicle. The video did not show a license plate or a clear picture of the driver, but Chrome siding identified it as a 2004 Dodge Caravan. There were more than 6,000 similar models in Toronto, but only five were registered to someone named Bruce. Of those, the only 2004 model belonged to MacArthur. By late August, or... Early September 2017, they matched the van from the surveillance video of MacArthur's apartment, but it was no longer at his residence. MacArthur was named in a September 8th request to place a judicial seal on the warrants so he would not know what was happening. They wanted to keep it under wraps. And a later request to seal warrants issued from September to November noted the investigation into Bruce MacArthur. An October request noted circumstantial evidence that suggested MacArthur's involvement in the disappearance of five men, including including Kinsman, so they wanted to keep it under wraps until they got evidence so they can arrest him. On October 3rd, 2017, police officers arrived at Dom's Auto Parts in Cortice, Ontario, 43 miles northeast of Toronto. They were canvassing businesses for MacArthur's 2004 Dodge Caravan, which owner Dominic Vettere confirmed he had purchased on September 16th. The police found it intact and had it towed away, also copying surveillance video of MacArthur visiting the shop. Vettere said that officers later told him that they had found trace amounts of blood in the vehicle. The blood then later was identified as Kinsman's. Court documents show that in November, cadaver dogs were brought to a Mallory Crescent residence in the Leaside neighborhood of Toronto. MacArthur had an arrangement to tend to the owner's yard in exchange for storage space in their garage for his equipment, for his landscaping equipment. The dogs did not indicate any human remains, but a camera was installed to monitor the garage. Police also obtained a log of MacArthur's key fob for his apartment with this and tracking warrant for his cell phone. And they started to build the timeline of the day Kinsman went missing. So he had no idea any of this was going on. 
I was looking at pictures of him. Doesn't he look like Santa? Yeah. It's creepy. I was just going to say, so he looks creepy. like a, uh, like an out of commission Santa. Right? It's so creepy. Ah, oh. oh, fights. I know, yeah. DNA evidence from MacArthur's van, which matched Kinsman and Eason, allowed investigators to obtain a general warrant for MacArthur's apartment on December 4th, 2017. Police then covertly entered MacArthur's residence and cloned his computer's hard drive. On December 5th, after consultation with the community, Project Prism issued a warrant about dating apps, urging users to exercise caution when meeting someone. In a December 8th news conference, Project Prism investigators said they had completed 62 witness interviews, 28 judicial authorizations, and assigned 308 actions, of which 225 had been completed. Police wow. has all, had also conducted searches, utilizing researches from the mounted and canine units, and on occasion, a drone was used. They said that they had Canada's no evidence. Around. Right? I love it. But they said they had no evidence to link the disappearances. Oh, that's shitty. And so after that, so that was December 18th, the investigation then picked up again in January 2018 when Insigna noted that they they had many 15-hour days and a 72-hour stretch of intensive investigation in mid-January. On January 17th, two pieces of evidence came to light directly connecting Arthur to the disappearances of Eason and Kinsman. A partial download from MacArthur's computer, which was going through forensic analysis of deleted files. Jesus. They found on his computer post-mortem photos of the victims that day. Round-the-clock surveillance was put on MacArthur with instructions that he should be immediately arrested if observed alone with anyone. Don't know why you wouldn't have fucking just arrested him then. Like. (sighs) It pissed me off. But yeah, that was... uh, January 17th, 2018. Okay. So now we're getting to his arrest. Police officers sur- were surveilling MacArthur, decided to apprehend him shortly after they saw a young man enter his Thorncliff Park apartment on January 18th. So it was just a day after. <laughs> so it kind of worked out. Believing the man's life was at risk, and a source told CTV News that the officers found the young man restrained on a bed when they entered MacArthur's apartment. The man was shaken but not injured. Referred- okay. Yeah, thank God. Referred to in court as John, the man had arrived in Canada from the Middle East five years earlier, was married, and not told his family that he was gay, which was more of his M.O. He went for people who were in the closet. Uh, I so, see it. I mm-hmm. see the pattern there. And John met MacArthur through a dating app, the dating app Growler, and said that they had met for sex several times. He had agreed to keep his relationship with MacArthur a secret and let himself be handcuffed to MacArthur's bed frame. MacArthur put a black bag over his head and tried to tape his mouth shut before police officers interrupted him. Whoa. That's scary. That's so they walked in on that, yes. Yeah. Thank God they did. That's insane. According to CP24, the officers had a search warrant for the apartment obtained after gaining blood evidence from his van. Police seized electronic devices from the apartment, including five cell phones, five computers, three digital cameras, and about a dozen USB flash drives. Whoa. That, that's Why do you need five cell phones, five computers? You're doing shady shit. Yeah, just clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Evidence found in uh, Bruce's apartment shortly after the arrest prompted investigators to charge him with two counts of first-degree murder and the presumed deaths of Kinsman and Essen, because none of these bodies were found yet. Okay. 
Are they I said that and it goes, their bodies have not been found yet. I was, <laughs> I was like, I need to stick to my script. That's all good. <laughs> but police said that they had a pretty good idea of how they died. And Signa was satisfied that there was enough evidence for murder convictions, even without the bodies. Oh, wow. And a source. Nobody, no crime. Like, yeah. I feel like usually. It's... I mean, they just walked in on him, like yeah. trying to yeah. strangle someone. <laughs> okay. Uh, a source told CTV News that photographs of the alleged victims found at MacArthur's residence led to the charges. The Toronto Sun reported that MacArthur's computer had grisly photos of his suspected victims kept as trophies. Oh, see, that's good that they found all right? that. It's nice that, I mean, he's they can stupid. Yeah, yeah, he's stupid for obviously. keeping the photos. But, I mean, I, this honestly reminds me so much of the Jeffrey Dahmer case, yeah, doesn't it? it really does. It's so scary. Like, and I wonder if he, like, heard about Jeffrey Dahmer and then kind of, like, took that up. Because yeah. he didn't start until he was 50. I know, that's wild. It's scary. Okay, so into the homicide investigation. At the time of MacArthur's arrest, Insigna said that police believed he was responsible for the deaths of other men and were concerned with identifying these victims. Doing so included coordinating with other police services, tracing MacArthur's whereabouts, and his online activity. By the end of January, Insigna, Insigna, sorry, it's, it's like I-D-S, so it's like Insigna. Like yeah. yeah. I got you. Uh, he said that they were investigating an alleged serial killer who had concealed evidence by burying it across the city. He described the ongoing case as unprecedented with hundreds of officers involved and bless you. Sorry. <laughs> and 30 properties to be searched. The Ontario, I'm just going to, the OPP and the OFPS, which is just <laughs> yeah. their departments, and the CFS were aiding with the searches of MacArthur's apartment and the Leaside property. Additional charges were laid out at the end of February. The investigation was expanded to outstanding murder cases, hundreds of missing person cases and sudden death occurrences coordinating with other Canadian and international forces. Police executed search warrants on January 18th at five properties associated with MacArthur and his landscaping business. Four in Toronto and a nine-acre property about 120 miles north of Maddock, Ontario. The Maddock property and the home on Con- Conlins Road were residents of Roger Horan, a landscaper and longtime friend of MacArthur. Another property searched was the, con- the condo of MacArthur's former boyfriend on Concord Place. These three properties were released back to their owners on- by January 23rd because nothing was there. The owners of the Leaside residence, which is an apartment building, mm-hmm. were barred from their home January 18th so that the forensic investigators could search it. The search of the property was extended to an adjacent ravine aided by cadaver dogs and members of the heavy urban search and rescue team. Cadaver dogs took a strong in- interest in a large planter boxes in the backyard of the apartment complex oh, mm-hmm. on January 19th. The planters had frozen to the ground, requiring heaters to thaw them. A large planter was wrapped on January 22nd and brought to the coroner's office. (coughs) On January 29th, 2018, police announced that they had found the dismembered skeletal remains of of at least three people in two of 12 large planter boxes. Whoa. Right? Two of 12? Yeah. Just two of them. So they like they have ten more to go through. 
And it was so hard because they said it was the end of January, so everything's frozen in Canada. It's cold up there. I wonder if that, like, preserved anything. It had to have. Well, I mean, this is 2018. It's been years. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Whoa. At this time, the remains had not been identified. Police had gathered enough evidence to charge MacArthur with three additional counts of first-degree murder and the presumed deaths of Majid Kahan. Uh, a Project Houston subject, Sarush Mahmoudi, who disappeared in 2015, and Dean Lisowick, a homeless man who was never reported missing. Former homicide detective Mark Mendelson said the investigation would become the largest Toronto has and has ever undertaken. Wow. Sorry, I know this is so much information, but it's like I couldn't no, even I'm cut like, it down because no, everything. Yeah, how could you? Because there's yeah. eight, total of eight murders, right? Yeah. Yeah, like total of eight that's a lot. I'll go over. I liked like because they didn't really go over each victim, so I like did a little section on each of them, so okay. it makes more sense. Yeah, criminologist and Western University professor Michael Arntfeld said that the alleged method of disposal suggested a sophisticated killer who had developed his craft, and as most serial killers begin in their twenties, the crimes could go back several decades and represent the longest run of a serial killer on record. Record. <laughs> But we know he didn't start until he's 55. Yeah. Uh, MacArthur's, I think. I could be wrong. Don't hold me to that. Maybe he did do one, but I know the most of them were between like 2010. Yeah. Uh, MacArthur's past as a traveling salesman suggested to John Bradford, a forensic psychiatrist and expert on serial murders, that police might have a, a province-wide investigation ahead of them. Toronto crime journalist James, I cannot... Dubrosade? Dubrosade? Sure, sounds good. <laughs> sure. The allegations... Oh, it's Dubrosade! <laughs> James Dubrosade! Oh! I didn't just... have a <laughs> Typo. Whoops. All right. Crime journalist James Dubros said the allegations suggest MacArthur was the deadliest known serial killer in Toronto and the most prolific gay serial killer in Canada. On February 8, 2018, police announced that they had found the remains of three more people in the planners from the Leaside residence, and the one of the six sets of remains belonged to Kinsman, identified through fingerprints. Investigators said that it could be months before all the remains were identified. Additional planners were seized from across the cities, including one from the Danforth neighborhood and two properties in North Rosedale were searched. Cadaver dogs were having trouble detecting scents due to cold weather and frozen ground. And then back on January 18th, heaters in a large tent were used to gradually thaw the frozen ground in the backyard of the Leaside residence. A forensic pathologist was expected to take at least 10 days to excavate for remains by hand. Whoa. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Kathy Grusbeer, who arrived to oversee the excavation, did not find any sign of soil disturbance by previous digging. Excavation of two sewage lines at the home was conducted on February 13th. The police investigation had a continuance, continuous presence at the Leaside residence, often described as Ground Zero, and police established a command post on the property. On February 10th to the 11th, the search of the house was completed and it was released to the owners. So that took a whole month for that whole investigation. At Hi. just that one that's yeah. wild. I'm looking at pictures from the... Yeah. The excavation. excavation yeah. Because 
I just had to know what kind of planner. You, did you see what it is? It looks like a little fucking like that you put in your window or something. Like, I know, like that's so disturbing. I can't look at planners the same anymore. It's insane. There's remains in someone's planner. I know. Just disguises fucking plants. That's so scary. It is scary. Imagine living in that apartment oh. complex or a condo, whatever it was. Okay, uh, forensic investigators spent hundreds of hours searching every inch of MacArthur's apartment where Insigna suspected some of the murders occurred. It took them several weeks before searching MacArthur's bedroom where they expected to find the bulk of their evidence. The search concluded on May 11, 2018, having occupied 10 forensic officers for nearly four months. They took more than 18,000 photographs and collected over 1,800 items. Whoa. Right? Like, this is, like, the most thorough search ever. Like, Impressive. kudos, Canada. I love you. <laughs> right? <laughs> they need to teach a lot of places. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just always think of how shitty I feel like every case I, like, look at. About uh, the police? The LAP, so mad. The LAPD, like, takes a cake for, like, Like, the they worst. had two task force. Two. Two of them. That's, they got some good resources. Yeah. Uh, it... Insigna noted that the thoroughness required as the first murder was believed to have occurred eight years previously, which we said was 2010. The search of the Leaside Hollow in MacArthur's apartment made up the largest forensic investigation conducted by the TPS. On February 23rd, MacArthur was charged with a six-count of first-degree murder in the death of Skanda uh, Navarthnam. Sorry, I hate these. This is the subject of Project Houston. Uh, Skanda's remains and those of Mahmoudi were identified through dental records because they were that decomposed and have been recovered from planners at the Leaside residence. On March 5th, Toronto police held a press conference and released a photo of an unidentified deceased man alleged to be another of MacArthur's victims. They had exhausted their options in identifying the man and hoped the public could help. Police later received over 500 tips regarding the photo and were checking on 22 potential identifiers, identities. They also announced that a seventh set of remains had been recovered from the Leaside planners. So right now we're only at seven, which we know he has one more. Um, It just gets worse and worse. On April 11, 2017. So remember, he was was arrested January 18th. Yeah. And April 11th, MacArthur was charged with the seventh count of first-degree murder in the death of Basir Fazee. And he was at this point charged with the deaths of all five men from Project Houston and Project Prism investigations. The charge came as Fazee's remains were identified from the Leaside planners, along with those of Eason and Lisa Wicks. Investigators had finished searching the Leaside planners, from which the remains of all but Kehan had been identified. They had a, one set of unidentified remains. On April 16th, MacArthur was charged with an eight count of Kumar. I really, I'm so sorry. Kanagaratnam. So just Kumar, <laughs> whose remains were the seventh set identified from the Leaside planners. So he was the missing, okay. the unidentified. Got it. And police said his name had not come from the many tips genera- generated by the release of his postmortem photograph, but that he had been identified with help from the undisclosed internal agency. Kumar was a, a 
Tamil asylum seeker who was under a deportation order and had not been reporting missing. He had last contact with his family in August 2015, and police believe that he had been killed between September 3rd and December 14th, 2015. Ah, Jesus. So So we're still waiting for mayhem. Mayhem. K-Hands. Okay. So there's so many names. Yeah. K-Hands body uh, to be discovered. And police said, no, got that one already. The scope of the investigation was expanded at the end of February 2018, looking at outstanding murder cases, hundreds of missing person cases, and sudden death occurrences, and coordinating with other Canadian and international forces. Police have received tips from around the world, including countries where MacArthur had vacationed. A police source told the National Post that MacArthur had recovered his tracks using aliases online, using payphones instead of cell phones, and avoiding areas with surveillance cameras. The source suggested that MacArthur had targeted vulnerable men who did not have a fixed address or had not told their families that they were gay. Detective Sergeant Stacy Gallant of the TPS Homicide Squad's Cold Case Unit said that active crime scenes of the investigation took precedent over revisiting cold cases. Each of 600 cold cases was being looked at for consideration of further attention. Wow. 600. That's a lot. Like, it's insane how much they went through for this. Yeah. They drew up a list of 15 homicide cold cases linked to the gay village and fitting the general profile of the victims identified thus far. Investigators began reviewing these cases dated between 1975 and 1978, when MacArthur would have been 23, 26 years old and working just a few blocks south. The victims of these crimes, all gay men, were found in their homes, naked, tied to beds, and stabbed or beaten to death in the manner described as overkill. In October 2018, which were almost a year since this started, homicide detective David Dickerson said that they had not yet found any links between MacArthur and the cold cases. Between July 4th and 13th, 20 police investigators conducted excavations in the forested ravine behind the Leaside property. They began sifting through a large compost pile, then proceeded with the guidance of trained dogs on a forensic anthropologist. They collected human remains almost every day of the search. On July 20th, it was announced that the remains belonged to Cahan and that the remains of all of MacArthur's alleged victims have been identified. And Sickness said that they had no evidence suggesting MacArthur was connected to any other deaths, though the investigation into cold cases was continuing. Waterloo Regional Police and Waterloo <laughs> uh, Regional Police contacted Ontario's Serial Predator Crime Investigations Coordinator to inquire about MacArthur in November 2002 disappearance of Whoa. David McDermott from downtown Kitchener. John Riley of Medford is another possible victim. He had gone to Toronto to find work in landscaping, planning to stay in a shelter at Church in Wellesley and disappearing in May 2013. So that's it. They found the eight victims that he killed. And now I will go over each and every one of them. Skanda Navaratnam. I'm so sorry about these last names. He was 40, was last seen in the early morning of September 6, 2010, leaving Zipper, the former gay village bar, with an unknown man. A friend who saw Skanda at the day before said he was excited about having a dog. He left his pet behind at the bar when he disappeared. He was reporting missing 
September 10th or 11th of 2010. Skanda was romantically involved with MacArthur, whom he had met in 1999. Uh, Skanda also worked for MacArthur's landscaping business, and friends said that they were still involved in 2008. Skanda was a Tamil refuge from Sri Lanka and had no family members in Canada. Hmm. Basir Faizi, who was 42, was last seen on December 28, 2010, leaving his workplace in Mississauga. It's like Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> Through banking records, later placed him at church in Wellesley. His last night out included a stop at the Black Eagle Bar and the Steamworks Bathhouse. So they had um, like the public yeah. prostitution, which was legal. Uh, he was an immigrant from Afghanistan while living in Iran. A childhood friend had cautioned him on coming out as gay, advising that he should not, he should find God or leave. That conflict oh. remained with Faizi, who was not out to his family. And a colleague said that he had been working overtime to ensure that his two daughters got everything that they wanted for Christmas. Stop. I know. He was reported missing on December 29th. So sad. In, what was this? Uh, 2010. To Peel Regional Police, west of Toronto, his 2002 Nissan Sentra was found abandoned on Moore Avenue, steps away from the Beltline Trail, a small ravine which is a popular cruising spot for gay men. Moore Avenue connects to Mallory Crescent and the Leaside Residence, where MacArthur stored his landscaping equipment. On April 11, 2018, police charged MacArthur with the murder of Faizi, which occurred on or about uh, December 29, 2010. We have Hamid Cahan, who was the last one, who was 58 years old, was last seen on October 18, 2012, in the gay village near Yonge Street and Alexander Street. He was reported missing by his adult son October 25th. Kahan was an immigrant from Afghanistan who fled to Canada with his wife and children in the late 1980s. Kahan and his wife divorced in 2002, but as the son of a Muslim uh, cleric, he had not come out to his entire family. He had post-traumatic stress disorder from the Soviet-Afghan war, was a heavy drinker, and according to a bartender, Kahan had been active in Gay Village since the mid-1990s and would stay in an apartment kept by his partner, who had also not come out to his family. Following the death of his partner, Cahan romantically pursued MacArthur, whom he knew, from the Black Eagle. Cahan's remains are found in a ravine behind the Leaside property, the eighth set to be identified. All right. Sarush Mahmoodi, who is 50, was last seen alive on August 14, 2015, by his home near Markham Road and... Black Manor Boulevard in the South Cedar Bray neighborhood. He was a manufacturing plant worker who lived with his wife. Police believe that MacArthur killed Mahmoudi on or about August 15, 2015. He was reported missing by his wife in August, the day, uh, the week after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mahmoudi had come to Canada as a refugee from Iran and did not have a family, did not have any family in Canada until he met his wife. They moved from Bari to Toronto to be closer to his wife's family. Police and his family had not connected him to Toronto's gay scene, though before his marriage, he had been in a four-year relationship with a transgender woman he met in a bar. And Andrew Kinsman, 49, was last seen on June 26, 2017, the day after Toronto Pride. This was the one where his friend did the rainbow. Yeah. Um near the Winchester Street residence in Cabbage Town. 
He was reported missing on June 29th. The friend who last saw him said that Kinsman was happy and upbeat. Kinsman was known as a stable, responsible man, a superintendent of his building, and a community volunteer. Kinsman has known MacArthur for at least a decade, back to when Kinsman was a bartender at the Black Eagle. Kinsman was seen carrying bags of debris on one of MacArthur's landscaping projects in 2011 and had been in a sexual relationship with MacArthur for some time. Salim Eason, 44, was last definitively seen on March 20th, 2017, near Young Street and Blue Street. Bloor, Bloor Street, just west of the gay village. Though there have been reports that he was seen as late as April 14th, near Bloor Street and Ted Rogers Way in Gay Village. He was reported missing by a friend on April 20th, so a full month after he was last seen. Police initially described Easton as a man of no fixed address who often pulled a wheeled suitcase. A friend disputed this, saying that Easton was in an unhealthy relationship and would at times stay with friends. Easton was a Turkish citizen who had first come to Canada to be with a partner that he had met in Turkey. According to the same friend, he struggled with addiction, was, but was getting control of his problem, and had completed a certificate course in peer counseling from St. Stephen's Community House just before he disappeared, which MacArthur was also a client of St. Stephen's and very trusted within the community support organization. He was killed by MacArthur on about April 16, 2017. We have two more. Dean Lissowicz, 43 or 44, wasn't known, was not reported missing because he was a homeless man. He was a resident of Toronto's shelter system. He had periodically stayed at the Scott Mission on Spandina Avenue since 2003 and was the last recorded there on April 21, 2016. He had faced struggles, included issues with substance abuse, but as was remembered as being very respectful he was trying to work more as a cleaner or laborer, having previously worked as a prostitute. He was killed by MacArthur on or about April 23rd, 2016. And the last one is Kumar. This is Kagnagaratnam, who was 37. He was the youngest of the victims. Last had contest, contact. Last had contact with his family in August 2015. He was not reported missing. He was one of 492 Tamil refugees from Sri Lanka who had arrived in Canada on the MV Sunsea in August 2010. When his deportation order was given, he went into hiding in the Tamil, Tamil community in Ontario and worked as a cleaner and mover. MacArthur killed him on or about January 6, 2016. And following the extensive coroner and pathology examinations after Crown Attorney and defense lawyers had information needed for trial, the victims were remained to their families. A memorial for Kinsman was held in September, and Mahmoudi and Easton's funeral were held in mid-October. Lissowick's remains were laid to rest in late October. Now, that just made me sad. I need to break before that, I go I should, into the yeah, legal like, proceedings. Jesus, because those are, like, that's heavy. It is, and it breaks my heart. Okay. All right, now we're going into, I, this is the last of it. I know it's been a long case. <laughs> now we're going into legal proceedings. In January 2018, this is when he was arrested, mm -hmm. a publication ban was ordered on court proceedings limiting what could be reported to the media. MacArthur was detained at the Toronto South Detention Center. 
Torstar reported on March 19, 2018, that MacArthur was being held in segregation and under constant suicide watch. MacArthur made his first court appearance on January 19, 2018, represented by lawyer Marianne Sally. He made another brief courtroom appearance on January 29th and subsequently attended via video link, represented by W. Calvin Rosemond of the Legal Defenses of Edward H. Royal and Partners. A judicial pretrial was scheduled for June 20th, 2018. The closed-door meeting with the Crown and defense lawyers and a judge was to address issues such as resolving the case without a trial. They wanted him to enter a guilty plea, and they didn't want to go through the trial length and procedural and evidentiary issues. Daniel Lerner, a Toronto defense lawyer and former Crown prosecutor, suggested that the Crown should consider severing the charges. Lerner noted that a long and complicated trial could put a burden on the jury and create a risk of a mistrial. Several media outlets had applied for the release of the psychiatric and pre-sentencing reports from MacArthur's 2003 assault conviction. James Miglin, an attorney for MacArthur, he had like 70 attorneys. And it just makes me so mad. Oh my God. Horrible. Uh, the James argued that this could risk his fair trial rights because of the pre-sentencing reports, but Justice Leslie Chaplin felt the reports were generally positive towards MacArthur and released them on June 27, 2018. Chaplin also allowed the media to view but not publish photographs of the victim's injuries and the weapons used, citing fair trial rights and the victim's privacy. On October, like this, he still hasn't like pled guilty or anything they're trying to yeah what? they're trying to work with him to plead guilty because they didn't want to use taxpayers money to put him through this yeah. length of trial so in court on october 5th 2018 cantlin said that the negotiations and discussions are ongoing with the plea represented by james MacArthur, appeared in court in person on october 22nd and waived his right to a preliminary hearing not contesting whether the evidence was sufficient for charges to be committed to trial MacArthur was ordered to be tried for eight counts of first-degree murder. And on January 29th, before justice, John McCann, so this was 2019, Mm -hmm. MacArthur pleaded guilty finally. Finally. To each of the eight first-degree murder charges that he was facing, ending the possibility of any trial, which they wanted. Yeah. So reading from an agreed statement of facts, Cantlin, which is the judge, divulged details of the killings. And this is going to be gross, I'm sorry. Which took place in Toronto between 2010 and 2017. Each murder was either premeditated and involved other crimes which qualified them as first degree. Six were sexual in nature and five included confinement. MacArthur kept trophies from his victims, including jewelry and a notebook. DNA from four of the victims had been found in MacArthur's van. MacArthur had hundreds of post-mortem digital photographs of the victims, which were recovered Recovered forensically after he tried to delete them. He took stage post-mortem photographs, typically with ropes around their neck, and with them nude in a fur coat or hat. Some photographs had them with their heads and beard shaved. He shaved them after. And he had MacArthur having kept their hair in Ziploc bags in a shed at a cemetery. Uh, Judge Judge Cantlin said that MacArthur sought out and exploited vulnerabilities in his victims that made his crimes difficult to detect. 
that he used sex to lure them, killing many in his bedroom through ligature strangulation. One photograph showed a rope around a victim's neck, twisted with a metal bar wrapped <gasps> in tape. Oh. And it, this was seen as a mechanism to control the pressure during strangulation. The bar was found in MacArthur's 2017 van, contained the DNA of Kinsman and Eason. MacArthur's sentencing hearing began on February 4, 2019. The Crown asked for a 50-year parole ineligibility, citing the enormity of MacArthur's crimes. His lack of remorse, because he actually declined to address the court at all, and the betrayals upon the victims, the effect of his crimes on the community, and how he had been a danger up until his arrest. Miglin, which was his attorney, was said such a sentence would be unduly harsh, given MacArthur's age, and noted he had waived a preliminary hearing and pleaded guilty. Like, no, fuck you, die in prison. Yeah, what? On February 8th, Justice McMahon sentenced Arthur to life imprisonment with no parole eligibility for 25 years. Saying uh, McMahon described the crimes as pure evil and stated that McArthur showed no evidence of remorse and would have continued killing had he not been apprehended. Yeah. Despite this, he felt that the sentence should not be one of vengeance given McArthur's age and his guilty plea. MacArthur can apply for parole when he is 91, but McMahon says it will be highly unlikely he will be granted parole. And that's it. And he's still there. Whoa. That was heavy. Right? And, like, I think it's so sad, too, that, like, he It's only been five on, years since he was convicted. And then he, like, preyed on these victims who, oh like, God. didn't have family. Who like, were, like, he's so vulnerable. Like, or were so vulnerable because they couldn't tell their families that they were gay. Yeah, exactly. And, they couldn't come out to it. So, like... Yeah. My heart broke for oh the homeless man that was never reported missing. Like... This so sad. So, I know, like I said, all over the place, so much information, but yeah, it was all... we did all... a good job, like, oh reeling God. it all together because... So, like, he never came out and said anything? Like, no, he never spoke he never did on anything, any of his crimes? And they were saying, like, they I'm surprised they him. even gave him, like, a possibility of yeah. parole. They should have yeah. given him life without possibility of parole. Yeah. But... He's gonna again, be 91. Like, I mean... So, I think I that's doubt- what they said. He was like, they, they didn't want to, the judge didn't want to be inhumane, yeah. but he's going to uh, be 91. And they said with his age, he's not going to live that long. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it was insane that it took almost a year for him to plead guilty because they yeah. did not want to spend the taxpayer's money on a trial. Well, and I can fair. It is. He fucking killed eight people. Like, that's. I have, like, I'm, like, blew my mind. I'm digesting that. That was a lot. Yeah. That's crazy. These poor victims. Well, I wonder how his, like, how his ex-wife and... I know. That's the... His son, Todd, I think he was, like, arrested again, but it was just with obscene phone calls. So he's out and working on that. They, his daughter and his ex-wife, nothing about them, I they cut him off entirely, which wow. rightfully so. So, so yeah, this case really reminded me of the Jeffrey Dahmer Dahmer case. Yeah, it's, yeah. And I honest, I don't know if I I really want to try and watch that um, docu series. What is it on? B- BBC. BBC. And okay. it's called Santa Claus: The Serial Killer. Okay. And it's actually I one of the friends. I don't know if it was Kinsman. It was one of the. Um, victims friends who actually started the series to actually go through it and yeah heartbreaking i want to watch it because i really think this that's really like that was heroin right 
I feel like drained. After I know. I'm like, I don't really have anything to say right now. I, besides, like, whoa, like that was dark. And the fact that he like just was doing like it blows my mind that he started after like fifty. Yeah. And also too like, but they said they don't know. They yeah, can't true, connect they can't him to it. any of the cold cases. They think he did between like the twenties that he started, but they can't prove anything. Do they think he did more. Yeah. They think just, he like. They think he was, like, a substantial part of the, a lot of the cool cases in Toronto. Yeah. But they can't sense. prove any of it, so. Which they shouldn't. But at least he's behind bars and he can yeah. re-offend. I really, I have to kudos to the Toronto Police Department for all their work for this. Yeah. They I was did, amazed. Yeah, they did a lot of, it was a lot so of good awesome. work. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, we... Hope you keep listening. Yeah, please, because we're not done yet. Um, we have one more case. Okay, now I'm going to follow up Sarah's case with um another gruesome case. Um, I'm gonna put a trigger warning on this because this involves crimes against children and torture and murder. Um, it is really sad. Uh. So, this is about uh, witchcraft gone wrong, if love you will. I love witchcraft when it's good witchcraft. When it goes right. <laughs> when it goes right. <laughs> um, this is, I'll get into it, but this is just horrific. Um, so, this witchcraft murder happened on Christmas against a child. Um, the story depicts the incredibly heartbreaking murder of Christy Bamu. Uh, there was a gut-wrenching torture of him and his siblings leading up to Christmas Day. Um, and unfortunately, it was done by his eldest sister, Magali Bamboo. I said bamboo. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why. It looks like bamboo, but it's... It does. Bamboo. 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 Um, anyway, and her boyfriend, Eric Biku. 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 I don't know. Because We're going to run with that. Sure. We're going with a lot of cases that are not in the United States. Mm-hmm. On February 21st of 1983, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Magali Bamboo, fuck, I keep saying Bamboo, <laughs> Bamboo, I'm sorry, was born to her parents, Pierre and Jacqueline, and the family then moved to Paris. Um, Pierre opened his own carpentry business, designing and manufacturing furniture. He later moved him and his wife back to Congo to continue business, and 13-year-old Magali was left to live with her mother's niece, Phoebe, and her husband, Fernandad, in Dagenham, in East London. Uh, Apparently, Magali was treated horribly like a slave. And then later in life, Magali met Eric Bikubi through a mutual friend, and the two hit it off instantly. He was a football coach, and the relationship started off great, but it didn't last long. Unfortunately, Eric became extremely controlling, verbally abusive, and he also, like, refused to let her wear makeup, see her friends, all kinds of stuff like that, just started, like, controlling every aspect of her life. Uh, Eric Bakubi was also born in Congo in 1983. Um, sadly, his mother died during childbirth. Childbirth. <laughs> Sorry, you must have passed, like, the tongue twisting to me. Throughout his life, his father taught him about a type of witchcraft called kindoki. 
which was widely believed in Congo to be responsible for child possessions. When a child is pointed out, usually by a religious leader or elder, as possessing kindoki, the steps would be taken to rid the child of evil for the spirit that was possessing them. Hmm. Um, To rid them of the evil, this included beatings, salvation submissions, water deprivation, continuous prayer without food, sleep deprivation. Um, It's believed during the possession that this evil spirit has taken over to the child. So then the child is unable to feel the pain from the horrible mutilations and beatings, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, so like this is just, for me, I think, just a way for people to torture kids without like getting in trouble for it. Um... So, simple things that children do are viewed as indications of kindoki possession, which is like wetting the bed, biting your nails, stealing a pencil, just like very ordinary things that me? kids do. Like, I mean, I'm probably wet the bed when I was a kid and yeah. bit my nails and stole a pencil here and there. Stole Shit, I probably, nails. yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like, they're just very ordinary things that kids do that they you as kindoki <laughs> possession i don't know that's, that's so disturbing. i just wanted to like go over that because this has a lot to do with the case um during the relationship eric would talk about the visions he would have as a child bless you <laughs> like uh so eric would talk about the visions he was having as a child like seeing rats that weren't really there um and then much like magley's family eric and his uncle fled to congo in 1990 to escape the war and settled in London with his uncle. Um, his uncle would talk with him about Kindoki and witchcraft before he, his uncle then passed away. Um, throughout their relationship, Magali said he grew more obsessed with sorcery and witchcraft and began having dreams of his brother killing him. Uh, to rid himself of what he believed to be evil spirits, he moved around London to many different apartments to outrun these spirits. But this didn't work, so he began... Began? Began. What? <laughs> began counts... I give up. He began consulting a Nigerian pastor for help. So, in early 2010, Eric proposed to Magali, which made her siblings even more excited to come. Wait, I thought they broke up. They, they like, broke up. And got back together. Got back together. Okay. And then, like, he was, like, abusive and mm. stuff, and then he proposed to her. So in early 2010, when he proposed to her, um, Magalie's siblings were excited to come to from Paris to London to visit the couple for Christmas. According to Kelly Bagupi, uh, which was his 20-year-old sister, everything started off very well for the first couple of days, but then suddenly it turned sour when Eric and Magalie began accusing all five of si- their siblings of being possessed with Kindoki. Um. All five siblings are between both of them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, other than Kelly, all the siblings were born and raised in Paris, so they were really confused and fled against the accusations. Um, regardless of the accusations, they still were tortured. Mm-hmm. So, the siblings were made to pray constantly. They refused food and drink, beaten, and Eric even forced them to jump out of a window to see if they could fly. Kelly said no matter how much they began to, like, and begged him to stop torturing them, 
It was clear his mind was made up, and he genuinely believed his siblings had traveled to London to kill him. So, um, like, this was someone they looked up to for protection and safety, but their 29-year-old sister was allowing it to happen, and eventually, Kelly and her 11-year-old sister confessed to being witches to avoid the beatings, which worked for them. Woefully, this didn't work for Christy. So, this, Christy is... Um, Magalie's brother. So the same night of the sister's confession, Chrissy was beaten and involuntary wet himself. Um, once Eric found his underwear, he took this as a sign that Chrissy was the one who brought the Kondoki into the house and began to focus on him, even encouraging the other siblings to join in on the torture. They were forced to restrain Chrissy while his sister Magalie smashed bathroom tiles on his back hit his hands with hammers, used a knife to make cuts all over his body, and used pliers to mutilate one of his ears. Ugh, it gives me, like, chills thinking yeah, about it. Seriously. This went on for three and a half days. Um, this torture continued, resulting in 130 separate injures, injuries. Wow. And on the fourth day, which was Christmas Eve, Chrissy was begging and pleading for his sister Magalie to just let him die at this point. Oh. And he's only 15. <laughs> Like, That's so, so sad. That's your sister. Can you imagine? I can't. I literally can't. So then Eric began forcing the siblings to clean the blood from the apartment while playing loud music and screaming at them, which led to a noise complaint from a neighbor. But the complaint wasn't followed up on, which also <laughs> makes me cringe. You could help this kid. I know. So later that night, Eric made a call to Pierre and Jacqueline telling them Chrissy was possessed, and if they did not come to Chrissy, he would kill him. Now, Pierre and Jacqueline are Chrissy's parents. Okay. At first, the parents were in disbelief, but they suddenly began packing, trying to organize a rental for a six-hour car journey from Paris to London. While his parents made the journey, Eric and Magalie forced all five children into the bathtub and started hosing them down with icy water as a cleansing ritual. As a result of the three and a half days of torture, alongside the sleep deprivation and 130 injuries, Chrissy was mentally and physically exhausted. And on the 25th of December in 2010, his head slipped under the water. Then, Magalie and Eric called the ambulance and the paramedics arrived at the scene, taking him to the hospital to resuscitate him. But, unfortunately, he was already dead. Oh, I got chills. Um, at 8 p.m. that night, Kelly Bamu called her father, her father and informed him her brother, his son Christy, was dead. Eric and Magalie were arrested and once charged with murder and two counts of actual bodily harm. They um, were in charge with the torture of the other siblings? No. So I mean, I'm gonna go. So I'm gonna go into the trial. The trial was told the attacks began with beatings that intensified until Bakubi, helped and encouraged by Bamu, was using an armory armory of weapons that he found in his flat. He beat the child with the metal bar used for weights, shoved the metal bar into his ear and his mouth, struck Chrissy with a hammer, knocking out his teeth. He also beat him and taking pliers and wrenching his ear. Um, giving evidence through a French interpreter, the boy's older sister, Kelly, now 21, said the pair were fixated on the idea that they were practicing witchcrafts. She said, I quote, it was as if they were obsessed, and by that it became absolutely unbearable, she told the court. 
I repeated again and again and again that we weren't witches, that we had to come there to spend Christmas as a family together. But I don't know what was going on in their minds. They decided they were going to kill them. In a staggering act of depravity and cruelty, the defendants recruited siblings against siblings as vehicles for their violence. With Christie's brother forced to stand guard to try and make sure he didn't escape, just before he died, two of the younger children were made to clean up Chrissy's blood, which was covered in the apartment. I know. So, this is really sad because Pierre, the father, in a statement to the court, Pierre Bamu wrote, We were always fond of Eric and regarded him as a son. We were proud that he would call us mom and dad. And as a family, we planned our futures together. And Eric and I were opening a restaurant in London together as a legacy of our family. And, wow. And he killed his his son. Jesus Christ. The statement continued, The pain of Chrissy's death is something which cannot be measured or calculated. Chrissy was a fine young man, kind, considerate, and much loved by his family and friends. We saw that he was becoming a man. We hoped that he would work with me in my carpentry business and one day take it over. Chrissy was also a role model to his siblings. The court heard that 20 20 minutes before Chrissy died. The council sent a plumber to the flat who heard splish splashing in the bathroom, but nothing else suspicious. Neighbors told the court they heard angry shouting and continuous music throughout the night the night before Christy died. Neighbor Umar and Zir told police, I quote, I was aware of the noise coming from the flat. It sounded like a fish market. There was a lot of people shouting and the voices sounded angry. The noise was just so loud that I shut the window. So part of me is like, could have this been prevented? Well, you know, there was because a noise like complaint. there was a noise complaint, whatever. So the court heard that Chrissy was put into a bath and then doused with the cold water. As the bath filled up, the siblings were also forced into the tub. And when Chrissy became submerged with water, that's when Kelly noticed he wasn't breathing and Bakubi attempted to resuscitate him. Bamu called the emergency service, but by like I said, by the time mm. they got there, he was dead. So, um, they both, um, Bamu and Eric, like, so Magali and Eric, mm-hmm. they both pled guilty to the actually bodily harm on the grounds of diminished responsibility caused by brain damage. But the court, like, rejected this, and the case had to go to a jury trial. So the jury consisted of seven women, five men, and the judge said due to the gruesome evidence of these horrific crimes... They were excused from serving ju- jury duty again. I don't blame. That's oh, so sad. Magic. I couldn't. Brain. I could not sit on that jury. No. Eric's defense claimed that his brain injury, his cultural upbringing, and schizophrenia diminishes his responsibility for his actions. Magalie's defense argued that she manipulated. That she was manipulated, and she did not believe in witchcraft. Kelly, however, testified against her sister. And had no pity for her as she spoke of the lack of remorse from her sister, whilst her and her siblings begged for her to stop as she brutally beat and tortured them. At the trial, um, there was another woman, Naomi Longa, and her boyfriend uh, stayed with her the couple two years. Uh, wait, that didn't make sense. At the trial, a young woman, Naomi Longo, and her boyfriend stayed with the couple two years prior to the murder in 2008. And she was accused by Eric of being, like, possessed because she was biting her nails. The three days that she stayed with them and Eric, 
Eric refrained her from eating and sleeping. He and Magalie would sit and pray for her. Her hair was previously down to the middle of her back was forcibly cut short to release the kendoki. Luckily, she called her mom to rescue her and she was able to get away. Unfortunately for Magalie, this resulted in punishment for her allowing her to leave and Eric forced her to eat off the floor and gave her a black eye so she went to stay in a woman's refuge. Unbeknownst to her family, three months later they got back together, moved into the manor house, and got engaged. So he, like, Eric was abusing Magalie, which is just as sad, yeah. but that doesn't condone oh, no, murdering her brother. Not so then Eric Bakubi was eventually sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison, and Magalie was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years. The judge told the couple that the case was very sadistic and the belief in witchcraft, however genuine, cannot excuse the assault and killing of another human yeah. being. I was just going to say, I'm big on, like, beliefs and, like, whatever you believe in, but if it involves hurting anyone else, any animal, any person, anything. Yeah. No. no. Like, if you're taking you, it too far. Yeah, like, if you want to practice, you know, witchcraft, you want to practice, yeah. you know, any type of religion, like, do it at your own leisure, but don't. For other people. Like, like, yeah, she was the victim of abuse, but that doesn't mean... Exactly. And I'm surprised, um, like, I don't know what the laws in London are, but, like, I'm surprised they only got 30 and 25 years. I know. That's crazy. Because that was, like, a sadistic... Yeah, it was, like, sadistic torture and murder. Um, so not a very happy case. And none of these cases are happy, obviously. Yeah. Um, really sad. Um, I know. I couldn't imagine this, like, poor family. The, and the oh, siblings that witnessed that. The parents. Oh, my God, the siblings. Like, five of them. I know, like, five siblings watched their brother be, like, tortured and yeah, murdered. that's. And then, oh like, God. the parents. That's just heartbreaking, so. I can't even imagine being those siblings. I know. So that was the horrific um, case. I think we're going to need, like, a something. Oh my spooky God. or like Next. fun after this, this. I yeah. can't. This was heavy. This whole this whole day was heavy. This whole day. And oh my God, I know no one's feeling holly and jolly anymore. Yeah, right. We didn't want to make you depressed, but um, we thought bringing you some Christmas so you know some families aren't as great as us and have a great Christmas time. So just remember that. Yeah. So on that note, um, we hope everyone has a good holiday. Whatever you celebrate, enjoy the holidays. Um, and don't murder any of your family. Mm. Don't believe in the kenoki, apparently, because that's atrocious. Yes. Well, we hope you have a great holiday, and we'll see you next time. You'll see you next year. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs>